Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Brumwitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. So, on the one hand, I mean, I think it's worth remembering that, you know, these tariffs that were put in place did affect. Uh, medical goods that we shipped over from China. So this includes face masks, hand sanitizer, protective gear that is now very much in demand. And the Trump administration did, you know, offer exemptions for those products, but they did that very recently ago, as in, you know, one to two weeks ago. And at that point, you know, some of the damage is already done. I mean, we've already then shifted the flow of goods now to places like Europe, which, of course, are battling their own issues with the coronavirus and may in the future be less willing to export some of those products to us. Um, and then, you know, it's also an issue of whether or not, you know, we're necessarily the, the uh, customer of first choice for um, Chinese suppliers. You know, the Peterson Institute did a really great piece on this, just looking at the ways in which it changes incentives when you do have those tariffs in place. So that certainly is not helpful. But I think about it also, you know, the second part of this is just in a broader sense, manufacturers are getting hit really hard by this, whether that's just, you know, a total drop off in demand or a disruption of their supply chain. And the tariffs just seem like an extra tax that makes this harder on them and just seems unnecessary. And that's particularly true at a time when we're really starting to see an emphasis on calling manufacturers to step up and use their idled factories to make products like masks and ventilators help fulfill this shortage in America right now. And if they do that, is the reward then that when we go back to normal life, they still have to jump through the obstacles of tariffs when they answer their patriotic duty? I just, I don't know if it makes sense. And it strikes me as more of a hindrance when we should be focusing on everything that can possibly help us in this fight against coronavirus. Brooke, a really interesting take at a time when it's like whack-a-mole with respect to the information coming at you every single day in terms of which part of the market, which part of the economy, which part of the political world, which part of the central banking world is uh, in the front and in the focus. Amid all of this, we haven't talked as much about supply chains just more broadly. And before we get into just what the tariff policy should be, how much are supply chains still disrupted from what happened in China and what's been going on now in, in, in Europe? I mean, how much are those supply chains still intact to begin with? Look, I mean, I think they were significantly disrupted by what happened in China. And, you know, at the time, that sparked a conversation of, oh, are we too dependent on China? But then as you've seen this virus spread across the world, I don't know if it really makes a difference at this point where your supply chains are. We're seeing factories shut down in Latin America, factories shut down in the U.S., factories shut down in Europe. And so, you know, I I think as we think about how supply chains 
change down the road. Initially, I was thinking of this as more of a geographical rethink, but then I think that now maybe we pivot to what do these factories look like? You know, robots don't get coronavirus. Does this just speed the spread of automation? Do we see more and more companies relying on additive manufacturing where you don't need to get parts from different parts of the world? You can just have something come out of a printer and be in your factory. So I think those types of conversations are maybe now where we're more headed at this point in time because you are seeing amazing disruption to the flow of goods, um, you know, across a broad range of products. And I think we're going to have to think about how we better safeguard those systems. Well, I think the line of the day, Lisa, is robots don't get coronavirus. Yeah, and I kind of malfunctioned a little <laughs> bit earlier when I was trying to speak, so I think I'm safe. So, Brooke, just practically speaking, can an auto manufacturing plant switch over to make ventilators? So there are issues with this. So, you know, the U.K. is also calling on its manufacturers to make ventilators, and the concern there is that these are very heavily regulated devices, and we don't, I think, want to be in the practice of bending those rules because obviously we don't want to do anything that might make this health crisis actually worse. But I do think, you know, companies that have experience making heavily regulated equipment um, might be in a better position to step up, at least as far as that is concerned. Now, I will say, you know, uh, auto factories do require require assembly lines somewhat similar to ventilators. And there are similarities if you think about, you know, the highly advanced like HVAC systems that are in those cars and, you know, the technology that you would need to do a ventilator. So there are some similarities there, although there are hurdles that need to be worked out. Masks and hand sanitizer and protective gear, that is a lot easier to do. So you may see more companies stepping up on that front, but I do think there are is a path to make more ventilators, but we will have to figure out some of the logistics of that. And it's not quite as easy as just flipping a switch to making a totally different product. Brooke Sutherland, thank you so much for being with us. Brooke Sutherland, Bloomberg Opinion Industrials columnist, uh, joining us to talk about the tariff situation, rolling them back, but also the supply chains. And I do think, Paul, you raise a really interesting point, which is in a wartime situation, typically uh, the U.S. has mustered all of its capabilities to manufacture weapons or manufacture clothing for the troops. And you have to wonder if this is being treated uh, as a wartime situation, at what point will the factories that are offline to make cars be corralled into making ventilators and be making masks and Purell and toilet paper, because that seems to also be a concern for a lot of people. There is a question, though, about the oil patch and how much is sort of exacerbated by the fact that Saudi Arabia and Russia appear to be in a tiff that does not seem to be going away anytime soon, where both of them are doubling down on production at a time when demand is falling off a cliff to try to understand this relationship what happens if they come to some sort of accord and curb production what will that mean for oil what will that mean for the entire relationship of nations in the middle east and russia joining us right now professor megan o'sullivan uh, professor of international affairs at harvard's kennedy school former national security council advisor also a bloomberg opinion columnist uh, professor i'd love to get your opinion for starters of how long in the making this tiff between saudi arabia and russia really was i mean in other words how entrenched are they on their respective sides unable or unwilling to come to the ca- to come to the table and stop producing as much oil well as you know Russia and Saudi Arabia and the rest of OPEC began producing and cooperating in an unprecedented fashion towards uh, in, in 2016, basically to deal with the price plunge of that time. And for 
quite a few years, people predicted that this would be a very transitory relationship, both basically between Russia and between Saudi Arabia. And it was more resilient than people thought. Um, every time there was uh, an opportunity or a need to renew a production cut or to revisit it, people product, uh, predicted some kind of collapse like the one that we saw on March 6th. But um, I would say that both sides have been taken by surprise at the market reaction, because unlike the other times when it looked like Russia might walk away from its cooperation with OPEC, this time it uh, we have both a supply surge and we have this massive demand contraction. And so while both sides, I don't think we're planning for this fallout to happen, um, the fact that it happened and that the repercussions have been so dramatic, I think, does create at least some kind of an opportunity for the two sides to come together in the coming, I would say, months. However, the longer this goes on, I think there are certain new variables that are coming into the mix that could change the trajectory of what I think everyone began thinking was just going to be a temporary kind of tiff that would ultimately be resolved in coming together in a new production cut. So, Megan, it's just extraordinary to me that the behavior of Saudi Arabia and Russia uh, on the supply side, given what we now know about the demand side and the uh, cratering demand for uh, oil, who do you think is going to blink first and why? Well, I mean, we already have seen signs that the Russians are acknowledging that the economic impact here is going to be greater than they thought. We've seen the finance minister just a couple of days ago talk about how uh, Russia is going to go into a deficit. You can see the impact on the ruble. Um, Russia has more difficulty borrowing than Saudi Arabia, so it probably is less well positioned to endure a long-term slow price decline. So I would say if we're really assuming that this is going to result in the two sides coming together, that at some point, I think Saudi Arabia is not wrong in thinking that Russia will feel the pain and there'll be an opportunity to come back to the table. However, and I still think that is the main, most likely scenario. However, there are a couple of things unfolding, as I mentioned, that could change the perspectives of these two players. One, the demand plunge is so much deeper than people thought. I mean, literally, it's only been two weeks since these two countries came apart, and we've seen that the projections for demand have changed dramatically. Two weeks ago, Saudi Arabia was arguing that a cut of 1.5 million barrels of oil a day would be enough to stabilize the situation. People are now talking about this quarter of oil demand going down by 10 million barrels of oil a day. So coming together to agree on a cut of a million barrels is actually, even within these two weeks, is no longer perceived to be sufficient to the challenge at hand. Also, we're seeing producers in the U.S., Brazil, Canada, already coming together and saying, you know, it, it looks likely that our production is going to shrink. We're going to have uh, CapEx limitations. And this is much quicker, I think, than Saudi Arabia um, expected. And it must be heartening to these producers, Russia and Saudi Arabia, that have been frustrated that their policies have basically helped higher cost producers. So it's possible that you might have both of these sides, Saudi Arabia in particular, saying, hey, we didn't expect to move 
to the situation where yeah. we were kind of playing for longer. And But here we are, and maybe uh, we have to make the best of it, given the situation. So despite that backdrop, given the glut of production and given the fact that demand is falling off way faster than people had expected, I want to put into perspective the huge rise in prices that we saw yesterday after President Trump said that he could intervene, uh, that he would intervene if this carries on, and uh, that the U.S. has great power to do so to bring Saudi Arabia and Russia to the table. What power does the United States have to uh, to do that? Well, my feeling is the president is probably overstating the U.S. power here. The U.S. does have a lot of diplomatic and political leverage with Saudi Arabia just because of the importance of that bilateral relationship. And so certainly you can imagine that the United States would be putting a lot of pressure on Saudi Arabia to come to the table, especially if Russia is starting to show indications that is interested in doing so. The United States does not have much uh, control over Russian behavior, and the thought was that the United States could threaten some more sanctions. I actually think that could backfire. We've seen repeatedly over the last five years that Vladimir Putin is willing to take an economic hit in order to stand up to the United States. So to imagine that the threat of sanctions could change Russia's calculation in a way that makes it look like Putin is acquiescing to Trump, I think that is not tenable. An interesting idea surfaced just this morning. You had um, one of the commissioners of, of the um, Texas Railroad Commission saying, actually, Texas could return to a policy of pro-rationing that it hasn't had since the early 70s and rein in some of America's production. That opens the possibility, still I'd say distant, but for a Russia-Saudi um, uh, U.S. conversation that the Russians have wanted to have right. for a long time. And that could be where this could go. This would be the real wild card in the situation. But absent that, I don't think the United States has the ability to um, right. resolve this problem just through just diplomatic pressure. Hey, Megan, thanks so much for your perspective. We really appreciate uh, you helping us uh, understand what's going on in the global energy markets. Megan O'Sullivan, professor of international affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School, former National Security Council advisor and a Bloomberg opinion columnist, uh, giving us her sense on the markets here. Again, we still have a little bit weaker oil today uh, after the big, big pop yesterday, but still way, way down. Supply and demand not good for the price of oil. The question is, when will Saudi Arabia and Russia come to the table uh, and come to an agreement? This is Bloomberg. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. We are looking at a markets that are trying to find some calm after a storm that was the biggest storm ever, if you look at the VIX index, and was certainly uh, included some of the biggest whipsaws since 1987, Black Monday. And the question is, how do you find sane? How do you find sanity? How do you find a compass amid a complete dearth of any information? Peter Anderson, a voice of reason, a, boy, a voice of calm, uh, a founder of Anderson Capital Management, joining us now. Peter, thank you so much for being with us. What's going to help people stay sane as they invest their money in this kind of environment? 
Well, Lisa, I know that uh, you've talked to a lot of investors and a, a lot of investor managers, and I thought I'd take a little bit of a different take. Instead of just going back on histories of uh, sell-offs and how we react, uh, I thought I could propose a couple of tools for everybody out there because I think most investors are feeling really um, un- uncomfortable about the information and how they should act on this information. And if we could just get some simple categories, I think that might help people. So I have a couple of suggestions. The first thing is this concept of leading versus lagging indicators. Now, we've used those a lot in economics and investing, but probably not so much when we're talking about something like the virus. And if you recall, Dr. Fauci recently mentioned, he made a, a little bit of a reference to this when he said, look, what we're seeing now are the results of what the virus did two weeks ago. So I find it very helpful. Whenever new information comes, I put it in a category, is this leading indicator or a lagging indicator, and what should I do if it is lagging? It doesn't matter that much to me, but the leading indicators are the things I think we should focus on. Interesting. Peter, so as we think about this market volatility, are you trying to, are you suggesting to your clients that they <clears throat> sit on the sidelines and, and not panic and maybe take the longer view here? And if so, are you having any yeah. success with that? Well, I am. You know, I've talked to um, all my uh, clients and most of them are sane and mature that they say, look, I've seen versions of this in the past. You know, the virus is a new twist, but in terms of sell-offs, uh, we've been here before, and we also are quite familiar with the way we react psychologically and from a behavioral perspective. So uh, why don't we focus on what the leading indicators are? And so to me, the leading indicators are when we have the press conferences every day, I tell them to focus on the following. You know, what are the what is the news about the vaccination? What's the news about uh, trends? in the current cases, not the past cases, but what might be happening in the future. Because when we get these cases reported to us now, they're just going to get worse because it's the, the results of the virus in the past. So looking forward also, let's think of, do they announce new innovative approaches? For instance, yesterday they mentioned cruise ships could be available for um, hospital beds. I think that's very creative if we need that. Yeah. They've also mentioned drive-by testing. So the more creative we get with this and the more we get a handle on when the virus is going to peak, that is the main driver of everything. Everything else to me is expendable at this point, but we should focus on what are the leading indicators to tell us when we think this might crest and then we're off to the races because then we have a data point and we can say, okay, what should our act Actions be as a result of now knowing that we've reached the maximum case uh, accumulation. Well, and speaking of press conferences and paying attention, we will bring you some comments uh, by Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin and uh, House Majority Leader uh, and Senate Majority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell. They will be joining uh, shortly and with uh, some comments that they gave in Washington, D.C. And we will bring them to you when we get them. But there is a question when you start talking about how people have been through this type of thing before. Have they? I mean, this is sort of one thing that I'm struck by the speed that this has occurred has just been so dramatic that in some ways it feels like perhaps this is a different kind of sell-off and a different kind of economic downturn than we have seen in modern history. Do you agree? Yes, I do. I mean, to a great extent, of course, you know, when you look back at the major sell-offs, each one has its own 
story in its own cause. And who would have expected uh, something like a virus to have this major world impact? So I agree with you on that level. However, I also say that we can look back at how we react to each one of these surprises. Peter Anderson, a voice of reason, founder of Anderson Capital Management, uh, joining us by phone. Really interesting trying to find that compass right now amid a sea of uncertainty, Paul. Yeah, it really is, uh, Lisa. And I think a lot of investors, um, you know, they're if they haven't already panicked, um, you know, I think they're obviously looking at their portfolios, looking at their 401ks and just kind of in shock here. But, um, you know, I think one constructive thing is to really take a look on the other side. When we do get to the other side, uh, how do you want to be positioned? What do you want to maybe look at in terms of some investment opportunities? So that's hard to do right now as we continue to see the volatility in the markets. But uh, I think that's what Peter was suggesting that his clients do. Federal Reserve just announced coordinated central bank swap line enhancements. It says it'll act with the Bank of England, Bank of Canada, Bank of Japan, the European Central Bank, and the Swiss National Bank. The swap lines are to commence on March 20 through, uh, 23rd, uh, and they will go through uh, the end of April at least. And this would be the dollar swap lines that they initiated over the past few weeks uh, in order to ease up some of the dollar short and liquidity crunch there a few weeks, a few days, I should mm. say. Uh, it's been weeks, uh, at least each day has felt like that. And meanwhile, they're going to switch each swap line daily from weekly, uh, just showing this uh, ongoing effort to try to ease some of the kinks in the, fa- the workings of financial markets right now. Yeah, global coordination there, at least, I think that's the key takeaway here. And again, it goes to that liquidity issue across markets uh, that we've been talking about. So uh, it's nice to see the coordination. So Ira Jersey, Chief Interest Rate Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, we have him uh, standing by here to give us his sense on how important this is. And we have seen some dollar weakness today, which has actually been a huge positive for global markets. I mean, are we seeing the beginnings of this bleed into markets? The Fed is actually being successful in easing some of the dollar shortage. Yeah, so I I do think that this type of activity in particular will be helpful for markets globally and primarily for uh, those folks who are funded in dollars who aren't in the United States, right? So that's really where the funding shortage in dollars has been, that people have been hoarding their dollars, wanting to keep them as a safe haven currency. Um, So this allows basically for the flow of of dollars in the global financial world to, to continue. And the fact that they're doing these uh, weekly operations on a daily basis, I think, is important because that, that means that there's liquidity on demand. So the way that they did it before by only having an auction once a week is you only had liquidity on that day. You didn't have liquidity all those other days. So um, while I think the total dollar amounts might not be massive in this program, um, keep in mind, they did get up to almost $500 billion during the crisis. So it's very possible that you could wind up with you know fifty or hundred billion dollars of usage in these swap lines um, every, uh, every day, and and you know so you wind up with with a rolling hundred billion dollars every day that that basically helps the financial markets to work. You know some of the other things that the Fed's done, I don't think will have a massive issue. Like last night, 
the Fed announced that they were bringing back the commercial paper, um, uh, the, the, the money market funding facility. But quite frankly, money markets weren't really a problem this time. This is, you know, this is a much different crisis than 2008. Well, uh, I, I do want to just before we let you go, because I know you've got a lot on your plate. There is still a question, though, about the demand for dollars. And I look at one month and three month T-bills. The rates on those are both negative. You can find mm-hmm. negative rates currently in the United States. Is that a concern for you, given the fact that the lower balance for the Federal Reserve has been and has been stated again and again is zero, and they are not planning to go negative. Yeah, well, I don't think that that's a problem. I think that does show you the risk-off mentality that's still pervasive within the markets. And, and you know, the fact that you have um, interest rates that are not going to go up anytime soon, the, uh, the, the idea that you have uh, T-bills that are still in demand, it's basically the, the safe haven of safe havens. If you, if you have to buy securities and you can't hold cash, then you have to buy something, and that winds up being front-end T-bills. And, you know, this did happen. I mean, this did happen not so long ago. You look at 2011, you look at 2009, you had negative T-bill yields. So this is this a rehash of that. This is almost like, you know, whereas last time in 2007 and 2009, you had a significant um, – uh, it took a little while for the, right. all of this to happen. This is kind of just a sped-up uh, version of, uh, of, a, uh, of risk-off, yeah. Hey, Ira, thanks so much for giving us a few minutes. We know you're busy, but we appreciate your insight there. Ira Jersey, Chief Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg, Bloomberg Intelligence. Looking at the markets here, we are slightly green on the screen. Let's see where the action is. Bloomberg Stocks Editor Dave Wilson. Dave, what are you looking at this morning? Well, even though uh, you know we, we were green, I should say that the uh, S&P 500 has now turned lower by a tenth of a percent. You have more stocks down than up. I mean, you're seeing uh, department stores are one area that jumps out because, you know, you had Kohl's closing all of its U.S. retail stores, more than 1,100 locations until at least April 1st because of the coronavirus. Kohl's is down about 7.5%. You're seeing Macy's and Nordstrom fall as well. And then there's the story of AT&T, and that's a pretty interesting case because this is a company that's been buying back stock that they issued when they bought Time Warner. They had a $4 billion program in place to do that uh, after a a previous one in December, what they call an accelerated share approaches program, uh, worked out with Morgan Stanley. Pretty common for companies to to go this route. So today, AT&T comes out and says, we're canceling the current program, and we report that AT&T is going for $3 billion in loans to try and bolster its finances. So you put that all together, you've got AT&T down 6.5%. So, I mean, it's really two sides of the same coin in a sense. Companies pulling back from buying back their shares, even though they're way down clearly from where they were just a month ago, and increasingly having to line up financing at the very least to make sure that they can keep their business going. Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks Editor, thank you so much for the update. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like 
everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.